0: Matthew, chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 11. Matthew, chapter 3, verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. Burkett notes, Here we have our Savior's solemn inauguration and public entrance upon his prophetic office by baptism or washing with water. According to the manner of the priests under the ceremonial law, Exodus 29.4, where we have observable, one, the circumstance of time. Then cometh Jesus. That is, after he had lain hid in Nazareth thirty years, he comes abroad and enters upon his public ministry, teaching us by his example that when we are ripe and fit for public service, we should no less willingly leave our obscurity than we took benefit of it for our preparation. Observe too, the action itself. Christ is baptized now, as he was circumcised before, not because there was any impurity in him, either filth or foreskin, which wanted either the circumcising knife or the baptismal water, yet purity itself condescends to be washed. Christ to be baptized for these reasons. One, that by this symbol he might enter himself into the society of Christians, as by circumcision he had done into the society of Jews, as a king condescends sometimes to be made a freeman of a city or corporation. Two, that he might by his own baptism, by the ordinance of baptism unto his church. Three, that thereby he might fulfill the righteousness of the ceremonial law, which required the washing of the priests in water when they entered upon their office, as appears from Exodus 29, 4. Observe 4, the great condescension of Christ in seeking and submitting to the baptism of John. Christ cometh to John, not John to Christ. Behold, the Lord seeking to his servant. Christ will be baptized of his messenger. Our Saviour's design hereby, no doubt, was to put honor upon the ministry of John. Oh, how dare the greatest upon earth despise the ministry of a man being appointed by God, which Christ honored in his own person and graced with his own presence. Verse 14. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Burkett notes. Here, one, the modesty of John's refusal John forbade him and refused to admit him. But why? One, in regard of Christ, because he knew he needed it not. Such was his majesty and greatness, that he was above it. And such was his purity and holiness, that he could not want it. Two, in respect of himself. He knew his own uncleanness. I have need to be baptized of thee, etc., He thought it unsuitable that a sinner should baptize and wash him that was no sinner. 3. With respect to the people, lest they, seeing Christ baptized, should apprehend him to be a sinner, and one that wanted the baptism of repentance as well as themselves. Observe 2. As the modesty of John's refusal, so the reason he assigns for it. I have need to be baptized of thee. As if he'd said, Thou art purity, I am pollution. Thou art spirit, I am flesh. Thou art the son of God, I am the son of Adam. Such a humble apprehension has this holy man of himself. Learn that the more holy a person is, the more sensible he is of his unholiness. Where there is the most grace, there is the greatest sense of the want of grace. Verse 15. And Jesus answering said unto him, suffer it to be so now for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness then he suffered him burkett notes these words contain our savior's reason why he submitted to john's baptism because it became him to fill all righteousness that is to own every divine institution particularly the righteousness of the ceremonial law which required the washing of the priests in water when they entered upon their office. Exodus nine four. Learn hence, 1. That whatever the law required in order to perfect righteousness, that Christ fulfilled in most absolute perfection. 2. That as it became Christ to fulfill the righteousness of the ceremonial law for himself, so it is our duty and interest to fulfill the righteousness of the moral law for ourselves, as an evidence of our being righteous in God's sight. 1 John 3, 7. He that doth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Verses 16 and 17. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Burkett notes, Here we have the solemn inauguration of Christ into his prophetic office, accompanied with a threefold miracle. One, the opening of the heavens. Two, the descent of the Holy Ghost upon him, like as a dove descends. Three, God the Father's voice concerning the Son. The heavens were opened to show that heaven, which was closed and shut against us for our sins, is now open to us, by Christ's undertaking for us. As the first Adam shuts us out of heaven, the second Adam lets us into it. He opened the heavens to us by his meritorious passion, and he keeps it open by his prevailing intercession. Next, the Holy Ghost ascends like a dove upon our Savior. Here we have an evidence of the Blessed Trinity. The Father speaks from heaven, the Son comes out of the water, the Holy Ghost appears upon him. Hence we gather that the Holy Ghost is not a quality or an operation, but a person, and a person really distinct from the Father and Son. But why did the Holy Spirit now descend upon Christ, seeing he was now truly and really God? Answer, the divinity of Christ was quiescent in him, till he entered upon his prophetic office at thirty years old and after. And the Holy Ghost now descends, first for the designation of his person, to show that Christ was the person set aside for the work and office of a mediator. Secondly, for the qualification of his person for the performance of his office. This was Christ's unction, Isaiah 61.1, when he was anointed above his fellows to be the king, priest, and prophet of his church. Last of all, we have the audible voice of God the Father pronouncing, one, the nearness of Christ's relation to himself. This is my Son, not by adoption, but by eternal generation. 2. The endearedness of this person. This is my beloved Son. 3. The fruit and benefit of this near and dear relation unto us, in whom I am well pleased. Note 1. That there is no possibility for any person to please God out of Christ. Both our persons and our performances find acceptance only for his sake. Two, that in and through Christ, God is well-pleased with all believers. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well-pleased, etc. Lord, what reviving news is this to thy church, to hear that her head and husband, her surety, mediator, and intercessor, is that only Son of God, in whom his soul is delighted and ever-well-pleased, that Son who always pleased Thee, and by and through whom Thou art well pleased with and reconciled to Thy offending creatures. Matthew, chapter 4. Burkett notes. The former part of this chapter acquaints us with our blessed Savior's combat with and conquest over Satan. And the first verse informs us of the time when and the place where the combat was fought. Verse 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Burkett notes, Observe, one, the great humiliation of the Son of God, how exceedingly he was humbled by the horrid temptations wherewith he was assaulted, than which nothing could be more grievous to his holy heart. What could be more burdensome to him that was brought up from eternity with God the Father than to be shut up in a wilderness with the devil? there to be baited by him so many days, having his ears filled, though not defiled, with hard blasphemies spit upon the holy and reverend name of God. O oh, deep abasement and wonderful humiliation of the Son of God! Observe, too, the time when Christ entered the lists with Satan, implied in the word then. That is, first, immediately after his baptism. He is no sooner out of the water of baptism but he is in the fire of temptation. Secondly, immediately after the spirit descended upon, and the Father had by a voice from heaven manifest His complacency and satisfaction in Him. This is my beloved Son, etc. Note hence the great manifestations of love from God are usually followed with great temptations from Satan. Observe three: the place where this combat was fought, and that is in the wilderness. Learn thence that no place can privilege us from temptation or be a sanctuary from Satan's assaults. The solitary wilderness has a temper in it. Yea, Satan sometimes makes use of men's solitariness to further his temptations. A cell, a nunnery, or a cloister are as open to Satan as open fields. And the persons that live in them have a tempter without and an enticer within, as well as other men. Observe 4 the efficient cause of Christ's going into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He was led up of the Spirit, says St. Matthew. The Spirit drove him, says St. Mark. That is, the Holy Spirit of God, not Satan, the unclean spirit. For the devil is seldom, if ever, called the Spirit. But usually some brand of reproach is annexed, as the evil spirit or the unclean spirit. Christ was led by the Spirit. That is, he was carried by a strong impulse of the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Learn hence, one, that none of the children of God ought to expect a freedom from temptation, seeing Christ himself and the days of his flesh was strongly solicited by Satan into sin. Two, that all the temptations wherewith the children of God are assaulted are ordered by a divine and special dispensation. Satan could not assault our Savior till he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for that end, and he shall not assault any of his members, but by divine permission. Verse 2. When he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterwards hungered. Burkett notes. Observe here how the divine power upheld the human nature of Christ without food. What Moses did at the beginning of the law, Christ doth at the beginning of the gospel, namely, fast forty days and forty nights. Christ hereby intended our admiration, not our imitation, or, if our imitation, of the action only, not of the time. Christ teaches us by fasting and prayer to prepare ourselves for a conflict with our spiritual enemies. As he prepared himself by fasting to grapple with the tempter, so should we. Verse 3. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the occasion of the temptation, to the temptation itself. The occasion was our Savior's hunger and want of bread. Learn thence that when God suffers any of his dear children to fall into want and to be straitened for outward things, Satan takes a mighty advantage thereupon to tempt and assault them. But what dost he tempt our Savior to? To the sin of distrust, to the question of his sonship, if thou be the Son of God. And next, to distrust his father's providence and care, command that these stones be made bread. As if Satan had said, How unlikely it is that thou should be highly favored and yet deserted. What, the Son of God, and yet ready to starve? Certainly if thou cannot supply thy necessities, thou art nothing akin to God. Learn hence, one, that Satan's grand design is first to tempt the children of God to doubt their adoption, and next, to distrust God's fatherly care over them, and provision for them. And last of all, to use unwarrantable means to help themselves. Thus Satan dealt with Christ, and thus he deals with Christians. For to work a miracle at Satan's direction was not a lawful means of providing food for himself. Verse 4 But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Burkett notes, Observe here the weapons which our Savior made use of to repel the temptations, to vanish the tempter, and that is the word of God. It is written. Learn that the scripture, or the written word of God, is the only sure weapon wherewith to vanquish Satan and to beat back all his fiery temptations. Satan himself has not the impudence to oppose Scripture. What monsters of impiety, then, are they who ridicule and deride it? They not only run counter to the practice of Christ, but outdo the devil himself in impudence. Verse 5. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. Burkett notes, That is, Satan, by God's permission, took up his body and carried it in the air and set it upon one of the battlements of the temple. Learn hence, one, what a mighty power evil spirits have over our body, if, if God permits them to execute and exercise their power upon them. Two, that it is owing to the gracious care and watchful providence of God over us that we are not hurried away bodily by Satan. Thanks be to God, though the devil's malice be infinite that his power is limited and bounded and as he cannot do all the mischief he would to the body and souls of men so he shall not do all he can question but why is the holy city the holy temple chosen by satan to be the scene of this temptation answer i cannot tell unless he apprehended as he might that the holiness of the place would aggravate the sin no place so sacred no duty so holy as to protect us from satan's assault This enemy pursues us even to the horns of the altar. Lord, how ought we at all times and in all places to be upon our watch and guard, especially in thy presence, because then and there Satan is most active and busy and most desirous to draw us into sin. Verse 6. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou stash thy foot against a stone. Burkett notes. Here we have observable first the sin which Satan tempts Christ unto, and next the argument which he tempts him from. The sin tempted to is the sin of self-murder. Cast thyself down. Once we learn that self-murder is a sin which Christ himself was, and the best of saints may, by Satan, be tempted to the commission of. But for as much as Satan tempted Christ to murder himself, but had not the power to do it himself, do thou cast thyself down. We learn that though Satan may tempt, yet he cannot compel. He may entice, but cannot enforce any sin without their own consent. Observe too, The Argument Which Satan Uses it is a scriptural argument. He quotes the promise of God. He shall give the angels charge over thee. What a marvel is here to find Satan with a Bible under his arm and a text of scripture in his mouth. Christ had alleged scripture before to Satan. Here, Satan retorts scripture back again to Christ. It is written, says Christ. It is written, says Satan. Learn hence, that it is no wonder to hear heretics and hypocrites quote scripture when Satan himself durst recite it. He that hath profanely touched the sacred body of Christ with his hand sticks not presumptuously to handle the holy scriptures of God with his tongue. Yet observe how wretchedly the devil rests, perverts, and misapplies the scripture. When God promises his angels to keep us, tis in all God's ways, not in any of our own crooked paths. Note here that although the children of God have the promise of the guardianship of holy angels, yet then only may they expect their protection when they are walking in the way of their duty and using the means for their own preservation. Verse 7 Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Observe here. Though the devil had rested and abused scripture, yet still Christ alleges scripture. The abuse of the Holy Scripture by heretics and seducers is no argument against the use of them. We must not throw away our Bibles because the devil quotes scripture. But as Christ here compares scripture with scripture, so should we, in order to find out the true sense and meaning of it. For scripture is the best interpreter of itself. Scripture is most clearly expounded by Scripture. This Satan knew full well, and therefore dares not make any further reply. Verses 8 and 9. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Burkett notes, The next sin, which Satan tempts our Savior to, is the sin of idolatry, even to worship the devil himself. O thou impudent and foul spirit, to desire thy Creator to adore thee, an apostate creature, surely there can be no sin so black and foul, so gross and monstrous, but that the Christian may be tempted to it, when Christ himself was tempted to worship the tempter. St. Matthew reads the words, If thou wilt fall down and worship me. St. Luke, If thou wilt worship before me. Where hence we may gather, Dr. Lightfoot says, that if to worship before the devil be to worship the devil, then to worship before an image is to worship the image. Observe, too, the bait which Satan makes use of to allure our Savior to the sin of idolatry. And that was, in representing to his eye and view all the glories of the world in the most inviting manner, and that, in a moment of time, to the intent it might affect him the more and prevail the sooner. Learn, hence, that the pomp and greatness, the glory and grandeur of this world is made use of by Satan as a dangerous snare to draw men to a compliance with him in his temptations unto sin, When Satan sets thee upon a pinnacle, look to thyself. Verse 10. Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Burkett notes. Observe here, with what zeal and indignation the spirit of our blessed Savior repels and beats back his temptation of Satan. Get thee hence. Note thence that the greater the sins are which the devil tempts us to, the greater our zeal and indignation ought to be in opposing and resisting the temptation to them. A great temptation must be withstood with great resolution. Observe, too, the weapon with which he repeals and beats back the fiery darts of Satan's temptation, and that is with the shield of Scripture. It is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God. Learn hence, that God is the sole object of religious worship. It is so peculiarly, the creators due that to give it to any other creature is gross idolatry and repugnant to the scriptures. No creature is to pay divine adoration to any but his creator. Hence it appears that Christ is not a creature, divine worship being given to him. Verse 11 Then the devil leaveth him, and behold angels came and ministered unto him. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the issue of this combat. Satan is conquered and quits the field. Then the devil leaveth him, teaching us that nothing like a vigorous resistance of temptation causes the tempter to flee from us. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Observe two, our Lord's triumph over his enemy. Behold, angels came and ministered unto him, food to his hungry body and comfort to his tempted soul. They came no sooner lest it be thought he needed their assistance. They came now because he was now pleased to make use of their assistance. Learn hence that those who in the hour of temptation do hold out in resisting Satan shall find the power and faithfulness of God will not be wanting to them, to send in the succor and relief in the end.